Well, our theme this week is City on a Hill, and so you've seen it on all the promo stuff, you've seen it on the videos, you've seen it on the pictures. And the question that I want to start out with this morning is, what does it mean to be a city on a hill in this sort of new secular age? This new landscape, if you will, uh, in our country in particular, I grew up in Malaysia, which is about as far as you can go on the other side of the world before you start coming back. And um, I grew up there. Malaysia is very multi-ethnic. It's also multi-religious. Christians only make up about 10 to 12 percent of the population. So we're used to being sort of the church on the margins and having to deal with a predominantly Muslim environment, but also Buddhist and Hindu my father was raised as a Hindu, converted when he met my mom. That's a whole another glorious story of missionary dating that we won't get into. <laughs> but here we are, and I think our situation here in America is a little bit different. It's, it's a little different than pluralism. Uh, what I was used to growing up the first 10 years or so of my life was an, an environment that was pluralistic. And I think there's some of that in our age, but I think what we're facing is a little bit different than just pluralism. We're facing kind of a, a skepticism, an approach to Christianity that doesn't just say, yeah, you're one of many options, but sort of you're the worst of all available options. And so the question is, what does it really mean to be a city on a hill when nobody's looking for you to shine? Nobody wants your light. We used to be able to preach about this God-shaped void in our life, you know. And now nobody really, nobody really senses that void. There's a philosopher who uh, is Catholic by his religion. He sits on the chair of philosophy at Oxford. His name is Charles Taylor, and he wrote this massive 900-page book called The Secular Age, and he's outlining how we got to where we are and what it looks like. I've never read that book. But there's another philosopher who wrote a 90-page summary of that book. I've read that one. Smart, smart. And one of the things Taylor says about our age is there is the loss of transcendence. There's a loss of the sense of anything above and beyond our world and our life, even to the point of a transcendent purpose. We're no longer trying to discover purpose that is greater than this life. I'm not sure that's a message that resonates anymore because everybody sort of made their peace with, there is no transcendent purpose. Just make the best you can. Do the best you can. And then there's, he talks about there being this loss of grace because nobody's looking. Not many people are looking for outside help. There's sort of this sense of, I can figure this out. Just give me the right tools, the right knowledge, the right science, the right technology. I'll figure this out. I, do, I really don't need divine intervention. And then he says there's also a sense, the loss, the fading sense of mystery. There are not many things that our age feels they can't understand. We, we can understand that. We, know, we can solve that. We can fix that. We can predict weather patterns. We can fly jets all around. We, we can discover water on Mars. Uh, we, we, there's not much mystery anymore. And finally, Taylor says there's also this loss of a, of a divinely promised future. If you think about our, our age, we're living in an age of either optimism that's rooted in progress that says, oh, we're going to get better and better. Look, if we just had more education and more technology, we're gonna, progress is going to take us into a new world. Or we live in an age of profound anxiety about the future. 
Think about the movies. How many sort of dystopian, post-apocalyptic TV shows, you know, The Walking Dead, all the movies. There's all of this stuff where we're fascinated by, man, we're going to blow ourselves up, aren't we? Either technology is the answer or the robots are going to kill us. Either way, there is no divinely insured future. One of the ways to describe the secular age is like being in a football stadium that has a retractable roof. Imagine you're there and it's a night game and all of a sudden midway through the game somebody closed the dome. Somebody closed the roof but nobody noticed. Nobody noticed. Nobody misses the stars anymore because all we see is the action on the field. That's the perfect metaphor for our secular age. Somebody closed the roof on the heavens. Somebody closed the roof to transcendence. Someone closed the roof to the more and nobody misses the stars. How do you shine when all the stars are gone? How do you be, a, how do we live as the people of God? How can we be a city on a hill when all the stars are gone, when the roof is closed, when nobody misses the light? How do we do this? How does the church shine? Our text this morning is in Acts 27. If you would uh, turn there with me or, or, you know, open up your phones and scroll there or whatever. Acts 27, we'll start with verse 9. This is a story of Paul on a ship and he's a prisoner. He's a prisoner and he, they're sailing for Italy but not in a cruise ship sort of way. This is a ship full of prisoners and he's bound and determined to make his way to Rome. In verse 9 it says, Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. And Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss. Not only of the cargo and the ship but also of our lives. And listen to this verse. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Here we are, almost 2,000 years later, we still read what Paul said. We pay attention to Paul, but then in that day, they're saying, yeah, who's this guy? Some prisoner guy? Paul's like, I'm an apostle! And they're saying, Man, we're paying attention to the pilot. Decades ago, in, in, the, in the late 60s, 1967, someone gave a lecture at Princeton Theological Seminary to a group of discouraged pastors and he said, I wonder if there's so much discouragement in the ministry because there's been a loss of sin. Loss of the consciousness of sin. See, if sin is no longer the problem, the gospel is no longer the answer. Right? If, if we don't have sin, we just have sort of dysfunctions and, and maladjusted. And all, then, then pastors are sort of saying, well, nobody really is listening to us. They'd rather listen to the therapist. Now, I believe in counselors. My wife has a counseling degree. We, we believe in all this stuff. But is there anything that sets us apart that would make the world listen to us in the church? They're not listening to Paul. And then if you skip down a few more verses, go down to verse 18. Since we were violently storm-tossed and they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. And no small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. 
Here's Paul in a situation where because of a storm, because of a turbulent time, the sun, the sun and the stars no longer shine. They can't see it. They can't see anything beyond the storm. They can't see anything beyond the low cloud ceiling of dark and swirling storm clouds. They can't see anything beyond it. And all hope was at last abandoned. I like this story for us today because I feel there are some parallels for us. You see, Paul was on a hostile ship in stormy weather. And all of us, we are kind of in a hostile world in turbulent times. And maybe there's something here about how Paul stands up. Though he doesn't have a place of influence, he's a slave on a slave ship. Though he doesn't have a respected voice, they'd rather listen to the pilot and the captain. Yet Paul stands up and is the reason they're all saved. Might we learn something from this story this morning? I think so. Verse 21 Let's continue the story. Verse 21, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, this very night, there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Isn't that kind of our hope? All right, we might be in a hostile world in turbulent times, but God, is there a way that you'll not only save us, but save all those who are with us? Is there a way? And Paul says, yeah. And then he says, for I have faith in God. So, so take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. The first thing I think we can glean from Paul in this story is that he awakened hope. We must be people who awaken hope. Make them wonder if there's something more. Make them wonder if there's something beyond what they can see. Make them long for something beyond the here and the now. See, I, I love practical preaching. I think it's important that we address people right where they are, but we're also kind of a prophetic voice that says to people where they're going, that shows them something beyond. See, Paul has a prophetic visitation, and that's the reason he's able to stand up and say, you guys, I have seen how this works out. Stick with me, and we're gonna be okay. If all we do is say, hey, here's three tips for six ways, for seven keys to, you know, make life kind of good right now, then they can watch daytime TV. But we are a prophetic people who have seen the future. We've seen what Jesus is bringing. We've seen what he's doing. A few years ago, someone did a study of the hymns we used to sing in 18th century America and compared it to the top 25 uh, songs that have been sung in, in America over the last 25 years and began to compare some of the verbs in those songs. And there's a lot of overlap, a lot of similarities, a lot of ways that we haven't really changed. Uh, we still like to sing about Jesus or someone said Jesus has always been our boyfriend, you know. Um, it's not, never been very Trinitarian. But one of the biggest differences between 18th century hymns and contemporary worship songs is that the hymns had a sense of progression, 
a sense of a linear journey of a we're going to go there. The final stanza, when we've been there 10,000 years, right? And it raises the question, how much do we sing about what's coming? How much do we preach about what's coming? And I don't mean in the blood moon rapture sense. How much do we act like prophets of hope? The two Hebrew words for prophet in the Old Testament are the one who sees and the one who says. You see it and you say it. We're the ones who say, I've seen something on the horizon. Nobody else sees it, but we see it. So I'm going to tell you about it. The closing words of the Nicene Creed, the oldest and most universal confession of faith, it ends with these words. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. The ending words of this confession of faith don't point us downward or inward. They don't even turn us backward. They point us forward. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Paul says, I've had a visitation from God, and I'm here to awaken hope. There is a way to survive. There is a way to be saved. I think we're the people that when it's midnight in the world all around us, we say, I've seen the sunrise. When all around the stars are gone and the clouds have covered and the heavens are closed, we say, no, 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 no. There is something beyond and its light is breaking through now. We sing before the morning comes. We awaken the dawn with our songs that say, this is who Jesus is. I love how John and the team were leading us this morning. Our promise is Jesus. Our future is Jesus. This is what we sing. This is what we say. This is how we awaken hope. But it's not enough just to awaken hope because you can awaken hope and people will find different ways to get there. When psychologists study hope, they say hope is really made up of two things. It's made up of a goal, a place you're going, but then it also has to do with who's going to get you there and how. So it's not enough just to awaken hope because you can awaken hope and people say, thank you very much. I'll take it from there. I'll get there. But that's not where we stop. Paul goes on. The story goes on. It says in verse 30, and as the sailors were seeking to escape the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. I mean, these sailors, they were doing what they were trained to do. Like, okay, listen, I don't know who this Paul guy is. I don't know about his stories of angels, but we're sailors. We do this. We know there's no way we're going to be saved. So let's just pretend we're putting stuff down. And actually, let's just get the heck out of here, right? And Paul knows, he says, listen, unless you stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And then the soldiers cut the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Oh, can you imagine what they're thinking? They're like, oh, no, busted. And they're still saying, and who is this guy? A moment ago, they weren't listening to him. Now they're like, what? Cut the ropes. We're all going to die. The second thing we have to do, not just awaken hope, but expose the lie. Expose the lie. Expose the lie that we can save ourselves. Expose the lie that we can be good enough, smart enough, intelligent enough, spiritual enough. Do you know there are many versions of religious performance? 
many versions of believing that we can save ourselves. There's the intellectual version, if I just have all the right doctrines, if I can understand, if I can do it in the Greek, I got it, right? If I'm smart enough. There's the moralist or behaviorist version. If I was just a better person, if I was nicer, if I served more, if I volunteered more, then I'll get it. But there's also kind of the charismatic version, right? If I prayed enough, then revival would come. I just knew it. I should have fasted one more day. God said 40. I did 39, and then I had a smoothie. You know, it's the Christian version of I'm smart enough, I'm good enough, and doggone it, Jesus likes me. Right? This is how I can expose that lie. Don't perpetuate that lie. Our role in the church is to call out the lie that there's any other hope of being saved outside of Christ. There's no way you can do it. Unless you're in the ship, you will not be saved. So cut the ropes to all other boats. Cut the ropes to all other boats. The boats of your moralism, the the boats of your own efforts, the boats of your own religious performance. Cut the ropes to all other boats. There's only one way to be saved. There's only one ship that's not going to go down. There's also the lie, maybe we find this with people in our congregations, maybe even those outside it, the lie that life under the sun is enough. That there, there isn't the sneeze that, hey, we're okay, we're good, we're, we just keep it all here, we're okay. You know? Earlier this summer, we did a series at New Life, New Life North, New Life Friday Night, New Life Downtown, all the New Lifes. <laughs> we did a series through the book of Ecclesiastes, and it was Daniel Grothy's idea, and I was not quite keen on it when he first suggested it. But I came to love the series because I discovered, you know what we're helping people do? We're helping them chase the lie all the way to the bottom. The lie that says, oh, if I just worked a little harder, I would really have a better vacation. Okay, follow that. Follow that lie to the bitter end. And then you're, what, do you say, what do you have left? It's meaningless. It's emptiness. Pull on the thread of that sweater just a little bit. Watch the whole thing unravel and say, oh, gosh, wow. You know what I think of? I think of, um, do you remember the old Jim Carrey movie, The Truman Show? Do you remember where he's like, and in this scenario, you know, the, the, the producers of the TV show are evil, so just set that aside for a moment. But um, he doesn't realize he's living in a set, a TV show set, right? But one day, remember when he gets in the boat on the lake? And they're like, don't do it, don't do it. He's like, no, there must be something more. And he rows in the boat, and all of a sudden, he's going out to the horizon when, thunk. <laughs> he hits the side of this painted wall, and he's like, well, something's, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's a world outside this. That's what Ecclesiastes does. He says, okay, follow it. Money, sex, power, pleasure of every kind. Go, pursue the limits of life under the sun all the way to the end, and you'll discover It's not enough. It's not enough. Make them see the lie. The lie that life under the sun will never be enough. In a way, to go back to our stadium metaphor, in a way, the lights of the stadium, it's okay that they burn out. It's okay that they burn out because then maybe someone will say, isn't there a roof on this thing? Is there some other way? Finally, verse 33 as day was about to dawn, I love that phrase. Luke, you know, he's such, a, he's such a beautiful storyteller. He's just told us that they hadn't seen the sun or the stars for days. 
And yet something is changing in the atmosphere. He says, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food and have taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. Very practical. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he said these things, look at these next few words. And when he said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it. And began to eat. And then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Now maybe those phrases don't mean much to you. But Acts, we know, was written by Luke. Luke also wrote a gospel, right? Luke, more than any other gospel writer, uses these formula words of take, he took, he blessed, he broke, he gave. It actually shows up three times in Luke's gospel. It shows up in Luke 9 when it talks about Jesus feeding the 5,000. He took it, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it. It also says it at Passover, Luke 22, where Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. So one more time in Luke's gospel, Pastor Brady alluded to this. It's with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. They're discouraged. They're downcast. They invite Jesus into their home. They're not really sure why. And then Jesus does something that Paul kind of did on the ship. Jesus was the stranger who all of a sudden took over as the host. A stranger is not supposed to take bread and bless it and break it. That's the host's job. It's not your house, Jesus. You've kind of taken over. Right. And it says Jesus took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it. And it says when he did that, their eyes were opened. They began to see. Now Luke, at the very end of his second book, volume two, he comes back to a story that uses those same four words again. But there's a couple of remarkable things about this story. Of all the four blessed, broken, given stories that Luke tells, this is the only one that doesn't involve Jesus. This is happening by a leader of the church, a sign that this is supposed to keep working its way outward. It's also different because it's the, 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 the scene, the people who are there are not disciples. These are not followers of Jesus. These are Romans. These are pagans. Paul is doing something sacred in a very secular context. Paul is doing something that previously only Jesus had done in a very holy setting. And he's doing it out in the middle of a Roman slave ship. What are you doing, Paul? There's one more thing. In all four of these stories, there's something about Jesus blessing the bread, Paul blessing the bread. But there's this Greek word, eucharistio. It's the word for thanksgiving, giving thanks. And Many of you know that it's from that word, Thanksgiving, that we get the word Eucharist. When we come to communion, we call it Eucharist because it means it's the great Thanksgiving. It's the great Thanksgiving meal for what the Father has done for us, for what the Son has given in his own body and blood. It's the great Thanksgiving. You would think that Luke would use this word Eucharistio in all four of his stories. After all, blessed, broken, given. Why, why wouldn't it be there in all four? Actually, it's only there in two stories. It's there in the Passover story, no surprise. It's there when Jesus says he had given thanks to the Father, and then he says he blesses, he breaks it, and then he says, this is my body. 
Eucharisteo, he given thanks. And it's there in this story about Paul on the ship. Isn't that curious? It's only two places that Luke says they did something Eucharistic. Jesus at Passover and Paul on a pagan ship. Paul in a hostile, secular culture. You know what I think he's doing? I don't think it'd be quite right to say Paul was serving them communion. I don't think that's quite right. I don't think it's quite right to say, oh, Paul was, he turned this into Eucharist. It's a bit of a stretch. But he was acting Eucharistically. He was acting Eucharistically. What does that mean? It means he was testifying to the grace of God. Testifying to the grace of God. Awaken hope, expose the lie, and testify to the grace of God. What do you do when nobody's looking for your light? Begin to awaken hope, begin to call out the lie, and begin to say, there is still God at work in this world, whether you see it or not. You can try to close the roof on the heavens, you can try to shut out the stars, but you can't keep God out of his world. This is still my Father's world. God is the ruler of it yet. I love the words of that hymn. He is the ruler of it yet. Testify to the grace of God. Paul says, look, this bread, this like leftovers, possibly stale bread that we've been saving for a crisis, in the midst of this storm, he says, you know what? Even this bread is a gift from God. And so I'm going to give God thanks because actually this bread witnesses to the grace of God. What if we were the kind of people that had eyes to see God's grace everywhere? What if we were the kinds of people who, were, who had eyes to see little signs of grace everywhere? And say, hey, hey, that's really cool. That, that's a grace. I find that so, so many of my conversations with people as a pastor is not so much about advice giving as much as it is about helping them see the little signs of grace in their lives. So, so I'm going through this difficult situation. So I know, I'm weeping with you, praying with you. And then maybe toward the end of it, you know, when you were saying this, it just made me realize there's just a little, there's a little evidence of, there's some fingerprint. God's still with you. God's still with you. What? No, I don't, I don't, I don't, I feel abandoned. I feel alone. I feel lost. I feel confused. Yeah. Just the other day, I was walking on the trail with, with a young man just going through a heartbreaking situation. And he's telling me all this stuff. And he says, I just I feel no hope. I don't feel any of the joy. I don't I feel any of this stuff. And he says, but then he's also telling me, but I'm, I'm reading this book. And I'm, I feel like the Lord is teaching me this. And so after our hour walk on the trail, which wasn't quite rigorous enough to be exercised, but I'll take it. I said, man, I just can't help. But you said this and you said this. And that's, that's a little bit of God's grace in your life, isn't it? And he was like, yeah. Sometimes what we need to do is be a witness to other people's lives and to help them see what they can't see themselves. The sailors couldn't see anything good about the shipwreck. The sailors couldn't find anything to give anyone thanks about. And Paul says, there's bread. Thank you, Father, for this bread. And all of a sudden, the common becomes sacred. The secular becomes holy. Why? Because Paul's there. What's the hope for our secular age that the church is still here? The church is still here. 
And maybe being a city on a hill is simply saying, hey, guys, there is a hope beyond this life. There's no other boat that's going to get you to the place where you really long to go. And God is still here. God's still here. He still sees. He still knows. He still weeps. His heart still breaks. And I just want to bear witness to the grace of God. Testify to the grace of God. I can't help but think that the reason we've gathered here today is so we can all of a sudden be open to see the grace of God one more time. There is nothing good outside the goodness of God. Paul says all, every good and perfect gift comes from him. Sometimes in our world, in our day, we're going to have to look a little bit harder for it, but it's still there. I chose on purpose the word, the word world when I said we live in a hostile world. I chose it on purpose because when, you, when we use the word world, we tend to use it negatively. Oh, the world. Oh, the world. And actually, we get that from St. John. Because John overwhelmingly in his gospel and in his epistles uses the word world in a, in a way to show hostility. It says the world knew him not. The light of the world came into him. Then they, the world knew him not. Jesus says the world rejected me. They're going to reject you. Don't expect to be applauded or thanked. In his letter, 1 John, he says don't love the world. The world, the world, the world. Every time John uses it, almost every time John uses it, is to show this hostility. But oh, there's that one verse that John says. You know that one that's held up at every football game? <laughs> For God so loved the world. And that's what we are witnesses of. To say to the world, I know you're living in hostility toward God. But God is still here. And he still loves this world. Awaken the hope, expose the lie, testify to that grace, the goodness of God. If this worship team comes this morning and our communion servers, if you'd come forward, I think maybe the best way for us to begin officially in this conference is to come to the Lord's table again, to really come with thanksgiving, with Eucharisteo. Maybe for us, it's, we've been just like the sailors on the ship, that frankly the, the clouds are so stormy and, and, and the sky's been so black that it's, it's been hard to see any kind of hope. It's been hard to remember or to see any kind of witness of God's goodness. Maybe this morning, like Pastor Brady said, this morning is for us. Maybe it's for us to say, God, open my eyes to see your grace again. Open my eyes to see your goodness again. Open my eyes to be in awe and wonder at the grace of God. See, sometimes people say the Eucharist is only a backward-looking meal. We look back and remember. But actually, the Eucharist is also a meal where we look forward. It's a meal of remembrance and a meal of hope. It's a meal where we give thanks, Jesus, for what you've done. It's a meal where we say, and Spirit of God, awaken hope in my own heart. 
so that I might be a prophetic people that speaks of this glorious future. And that even when we expose the lie, we're doing it so we can point to the greater thing. This morning, I think the Lord wants to open our eyes and to make us people who see his grace again. My prayer for you as we come to the table is that our eyes would be open. So that when we go back to a hostile ship in a turbulent storm, when nobody's listening or asking for our opinion, we stand up. We stand up. And we say there is a light that shines in the darkness. There is a hope that is beyond this life. And there is a grace that is strong enough to rescue and redeem even still. Amen.